This is just a quick reminder that it's the last week to apply to the side project sprint. So if you have a side project and you're feeling it not moving maybe as quickly as you'd like, or you'd like some feedback from a small community of people, carve out some time and join the sprint. You can head to outofhours.org slash courses. Hope to see you there. I want to create something that impacts other people's lives in a positive way. And I think there are many different ways to spend your life and there are many different things that can give you satisfaction that you can impact other people's lives and how amazing and fascinating is that. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. My guest today is Alice Bentink, most well-known as the founder of Entrepreneur First. Entrepreneur First has helped build hundreds of companies across the world, with founders raising hundreds of millions of dollars from some of the world's best investors. You can find out lots about Entrepreneur First on other podcasts, but today we're here to talk about her side project, Code First Girls. Code First Girls are on a mission to help women rewrite their future. Their website reads, Through the power of community, change can and will happen. Their active community of coders, trainers, and coaches is one of the largest in the UK, facilitating women to break into and excel within the tech industry. They've since taught over 20,000 girls to code and connected them with over 50 top employers since they were formed in 2015. We explore why scale matters, how to know if corporate sponsorship is the right revenue model for you, and whether new ideas are best built under pressure. I hope you enjoy. So you set about quite a few years ago with a goal to help 20,000 girls code. You've achieved it this year, right? We have, yes. We're very proud. Before you actually intended to do it, because it was end of 2020. I feel like you're the kind of person that will have like a five, 10 year plan. Is that fair or? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say very goal driven. And I suppose I just love doing things. Um, I, I suppose one of my biggest critiques of myself is that I love doing things and, and possibly need to step back and do a little bit more thinking at times. I don't have a five to 10 year plan because I life is just so complex that I just don't think you can ever make a plan that's even longer than about 18 months at the moment that, I mean, 2020 has really shown us that can actually stand the test of time. So um, very goal driven, but probably not much of a long term planner. What do you think the benefit is in setting goals? If someone said to you defend the value of goal setting, how would you defend it? I suppose I love making progress on something and I love to feel that I'm being productive. And I suppose that's my happy place when I know where I'm trying to get to, even if it's, I suppose, an 18 month goal rather than a 10 year goal. 
one of the ways I think about, uh, I suppose, my own life and career is thinking about sort of macro and micro happiness. Because I think when you're being a, a founder or you're, you're setting up a side project, you aren't opting for the easy path. You're actually opting for something that, to be really honest, often will make you quite unhappy. And because it's hard, because it's challenging, because you're constantly solving problems, because you're probably asking yourself a bunch of existential questions on a daily basis, as in, am I wasting my time? Is this the right thing to do with my life? I think often taking these sort of unusual path can lead to a lot of micro unhappiness. But I suppose the reason why I do it and I, why I've done it for almost 10 years now um, in terms of being a founder is I think it gives you real macro happiness that you know that you're heading for a mission. So it's not necessarily a goal, but a kind of a mission that you really agree with and align with. And I suppose I have, now I'm in my mid thirties, I have friends who I would say are probably micro happy, um, but macro unhappy where day to day they have a great life. You know, they have time to go to the gym and, um, you know, look after themselves and socialize and all those things that I probably don't have time to do. But in terms of a macro happiness, in terms of what they're trying to achieve with their lives, they aren't happy. They don't have that satisfaction. And I think there is a bit of a trade-off there that doesn't get talked about very much. Um, so I suppose I'm, I'm committing to be micro unhappy for my macro long-term happiness. And maybe that's the wrong way to think about it, but I do find that helps give me the resilience to get through some of the more challenging times when you're just kind of overwhelmed with everything. It's really interesting you say that because I was thinking recently around two different types of happiness and it was a similar thing, but I was approaching it from a slightly different way. For me, I feel like that I actually experienced two forms of happiness. One is a stimulated happiness, which is not necessarily happy. It's just very satisfied or very fulfilled, mm. which is often a form of like academic stimulation or, you know, or goal-driven stimulation. But then I think there's another form of happiness, which you can still have in the, in the day-to-day, which is a very calm happiness, which is not very stimulated but very, maybe it's very relaxed or very, maybe it's just very fulfilled in a different way. And I think the way I see it is that that happens on a day by day or week by week basis. Like you can be in between those two things. That's really interesting because I, I would probably, my reflection myself would be I'm probably more in the stimulated happiness. But I think you can always get overstimulation. You almost need the, the calm, the forcing mechanisms to get you into the calm happiness moment. So you actually realize how much you have achieved and that actually even if the day-to-day is a bit crappy, the long-term trajectory is positive. Do you think there's a danger of delaying happiness, thinking I will be happy once I've achieved this thing? Because that's something that I think comes up a lot for actually people with side projects and definitely people who sort of turn it into a full-time thing. Yeah, I think that is the big risk. And I I don't really know what the solution is uh, on that one. I think... Doing a side project alongside your normal work is just really, really hard. And I suppose you you almost just have to accept that. And I, I think sometimes the difficulty is that because it's often a passion project, you believe that because it's a passion project, it should make you happy. Mm. But that isn't necessarily the case um, on a day-to-day basis. I think often it can be easy to try and sweep aside the struggles of doing a side project or the struggles of trying to bring something into existence. But you're doing something that most people don't do. You're doing something that is really, really hard. And I think sometimes it's easier just to accept and acknowledge and then work out how to manage that. I actually, I do need to go to the gym every day. You know, that is how I maintain mental resilience or, you know, working out what are the things that can help give you that resilience. But I think you do just have to accept, like, it's hard and a bit crappy a lot of the time. But that's fine. I think it's super interesting and I think it's totally true. And I'm curious why you do it. 
what's your big motivation, if not happiness, on a day-to-day basis? As part of my work at EF, I interview, I probably interviewed over kind of 2,000 people now over the last 10 years, all who, who want to be founders. And the main reason people want to be a founder is to have impact. And impact means so many different things to so many different people. And I suppose the same is true for me in that I want to create something that impacts other people's lives in a positive way. And I think there are many different ways to spend your life and there are many different things that can give you satisfaction. But I don't know, maybe there's a touch of megalomania in that you can impact other people's lives and how amazing, fascinating is that? You know, I'm, I'm competitive and obsessive. So it's almost in some ways like I don't know how to do anything different in that whatever job I was going to be doing, I'd be working really hard and probably living to work rather rather than working to live. And I suppose that would be my preference. I've actually just had a baby. So I'm just at that point where I'm having to kind of rebalance how I think about like work in my life. But yeah, I suppose I've always just been very happy to live to work. And if I am going to live to work, I want to be doing something that I feel can have a positive impact on people's lives and can satisfy my intellectual curiosity as well. Having a baby, everyone says, teaches you stuff like patience and things that you like have to which if you're sort of that hyperactive like constantly achieving kind of personality I imagine is quite hard I think it's the only thing I've ever done that has made me truly mindful I'm as I was saying like I do I like doing stuff I'm not particularly good at being reflective and I just get on with stuff and I think because he's changing so quickly I almost have a sort of paranoia that I'm missing out so I feel being with him is one of the most mindful things that I can do. Also made me realise I'm probably more addicted to my phone than I'd realised. But yes, it's made definitely made me much more mindful. I'm gonna stop psychoanalyzing you and get on to the get on to the the more practical questions. So what is Code First Girls and where did the idea begin? Code First Girls is a not-for-profit that uh, the aim is to get more women into tech. Um, And there are lots of organisations that are trying to address the gender disparity uh, in tech. But I suppose the the key thing with Code First Girls is we believe the way to do this is by giving young women the skills they need to feel comfortable in a technical environment. So literally upskilling them by teaching them how to code so they feel confident either working in an environment that is part of a tech company or, as we see some do, go on to actually then become a developer um, and really kind of changing their career paths fundamentally. And the idea came from... Almost 10 years ago, I set up Entrepreneur First with my co-founder, Matt, and um, EF is an organization which helps people become founders. We help very high potential individuals find a co-founder and go through the process of building a company from scratch. You don't need a team. You don't need an idea. We see it as kind of talent investing. We're investing in individuals rather than in companies. And I suppose rather naively coming into the industry, having not worked in tech beforehand, we got, you know, kind of 20% applicants were female. And we were like, oh, wow, that's, that's terrible. Turns out that's actually really good. Uh, but in our kind of naive way, we're like, cool, we'll fix this. Why don't we do like a marketing scheme? We'll call it this thing Code First Girls and we'll teach a bunch of women to code and that will fix our gender diversity problem. So the first iteration of Code First Girls was literally me, 30 young women from around the country meeting in London twice a week and a guy teaching them basic web development. That was the kind of genesis and it just took off. This was back in, you know, kind of 2012, 2013, when now there are kind of many different kind of ways to learn to code. But back then it was kind of Code Academy. It was just kind of kind of coming out. But the bit that kind of really took off was the community, that there was something about having these young women in person where they could meet each other, build those bonds, and then seeing how 
we used to have a Facebook page for that kind of first group. They would start suggesting going to conferences, but they would meet up beforehand and all go into this tech conference together because they knew they'd be walking into a room of 100 men who would probably ask them slightly weird questions like, oh, so you you want to work in tech? Or like, oh, you want to be technical? Oh, you know you know how to code? Like, oh. Um, and so it, it became about not just giving them these tech skills, but giving them the confidence and the network to be part of the land of tech. And really, it took, I ran it as a side project alongside EF for about two years. And it just got to the point where the pull, the demand for it was just way more than I could cope with. And I think whenever you're running a side project, you just constantly feel like you're doing everything a bit badly. I felt like I was doing EF badly. I felt like I was doing Co-First Girls badly. And my co-founder, Matt Clifford, was incredibly understanding about like how much time Co-First Girls was taking. But ultimately, we, we had to spin it out and get an external CEO. And that just enabled it to take off and become the amazing organization that it is today. So when it started, it was, was it still a marketing campaign? When did you decide it was going to be a separate organization? Yeah, it was run inside EF for, for kind of two years. And then there just became a point where from a funding perspective, it made more sense for it to be a separate not-for-profit that would be easy for us to get kind of CSR, corporate social responsibility style budget donation. We we kind of span it out into this kind of separate entity. And that was kind of when we started to kind of make the break between EF and Code First Girls, which I think was beneficial for both organizations. I mean, in the early days, the good thing was that by having the two organizations running together literally as a marketing campaign was we'd spent at that point about 18 months building a university network for EF and Codefest Girls the original way that we scaled was by going directly on campus and we were just able to use all of our university connections to very very quickly get into campuses across the country so there was a real sort of launch pad that EF could provide to help Codefest Girls gain traction more quickly than I suppose it would have otherwise. So you have this idea, you're like, this. we need to fix this problem. There must be something we can do to get more girls or women in the pipeline. What was the first thing you did? Did you start by going to campuses or did you start a website? We were already going to campus. Probably I was on a different university campus every two, three days, traveling around the country on very glamorous uh, virgin trains to talk about Entrepreneur First. And so all it meant was that at the end of every EF presentation or every careers fair, we would do a bit about Code First Girls. And so the very first way that you applied to Code First Girls was you had to apply to EF, but we, we couldn't quite transform the application form enough. So we just added some extra questions being like, oh, if you're a woman, would you like this thing? Can you fill in these questions? So it was very hacky and very, probably very unclear for people what we were actually offering. And I suppose at that stage, we didn't know what we were offering because we had, EF at that point had absolutely no money. So it's not as if we could suddenly run a big marketing campaign or even be clear on what we could offer. But we had a sort of relationship with the people at Level 39, which was a co-working space in London, and managed to get them to agree to host. So that would be free. So that was good. And then we had some contacts with different PhD students and managed to find a great guy called Tom Close, who was doing his PhD at Oxford. And he agreed out of the goodness of his heart to create a curriculum and, and to teach it and to give up every Tuesday and Thursday across the entire summer to teach teach this class. So it was really very much kind of using beg, borrowing and stealing, um, not too much stealing, beg, begging and borrowing to get people to give up their time to do this. And I suppose because it's one of those causes that the diversity problem in tech is so well known and there are so few ways that have been successful in addressing it. I think we were able to use that kind of uh, social mission to really get people involved. So, yeah, the first the first cohort was very, very scrappy, but the women we've got were amazing and 
I think there were 32 women in that first cohort, all of whom came from like non-technical backgrounds. Lots of them, most of them were doing arts degrees. I think five of them ended up becoming professional software developers, um, which was not necessarily what we had expected as part of the outcome. Uh, I think six of them have ended up setting up their own companies. So it, it really, I think because the first cohort, the impact was so mind-blowing, that then created enough momentum to start rolling it out to universities. So it's a slightly different trajectory from an average side project because most side projects start as something external to your main work. And then you might grow them or you might not, or you, you know, you see where it goes. This is an interesting one because it starts as part of an organization, then it becomes a side project, and then you kind of let it go and it becomes an organization in and of itself. I'd love to know a bit more about how you found the experience of each of those phases. So when it was part of the organization, like how how did that feel just for your own enjoyment of the work? How did it feel separating it out as an organization? And then how did it feel actually letting it go? Uh, All the emotions. Well, I suppose at the very beginning, when it was me and my co-founder of the F, Matt, talking about it, we were just so excited that we could try and make a difference. I think the reality of then actually bringing that first cohort into life, where it was just me doing it on the side, was just stressful because, as I was saying, I didn't feel that I could give enough attention to EF or to Code First Girls. It felt like there was something there in Code First, but I couldn't really dedicate quite enough time to it. At that stage, EF was so nascent you know it wasn't a slam dunk that EF was going to be a company that would get to nine years old and you know do all the things that it has done so I suppose it's just that that kind of gnawing existential risk but in two places simultaneously and I suppose acknowledging that the time that I was spending on Copers Girls was probably negatively impacting EF and that I just didn't have my full attention on it I think whenever you're starting something new not being able you just want to think about it all the time and you want to give all your brain space to it. And when you can't, it's just immensely frustrating. And the City of London Corporation um, very kindly said that they would sponsor Code First Girls. They were the first people to kind of agree to give some money to it. And that allowed us to hire somebody to work internally on it as a sort of one junior person actually be able to do a lot of the legwork. And that definitely eased a lot of the um, strain. And and that woman, Madeline Nosworthy, was able to take it out to lots of different campuses and, and spread it out. And actually, that that was kind of, I suppose, a, a slightly easier period in that I think as soon as you have a team, you're sharing both the physical burden of how much work there is to do, but you're sharing the mental burden of you're not the only person uh, thinking about it. And then I suppose the next stressful phase was when it became clear that there was just so much demand. And we were very kindly sponsored by the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and they gave us a bunch of money, which really helped us realize how and that was that was actually a cold email they emailed us cold I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna gotta stop you because you're doing that thing that's that people who have got to a certain stage do where they go and then this crazy thing happened or I got the sponsorship and people listening are like I'm sorry how did any of these things happen so I need to backtrack because you said first city was it city of London was the first kind yes. of partnership how did that come about so that was through EF so they had very kindly sponsored one of the early EF um cohorts And I basically went back to them and said, we're doing a specific thing uh, to improve diversity. And they had specific budget to help diversity projects. They gave us a chunk of cash. But I mean, the the point where it became clear that Code First Girls could be a standalone thing was, you know, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch literally just sent a cold email through our very hacky, I think it was made on Wix, the website building platform, really hacky, pretty crappy website, just sent a cold email. And I had a call with um, one of their HR team and they basically offered us a load of cash and 
it was a huge risk on their part. Um, and it's been an amazing partnership for the last now almost eight years. But I'm sorry, it's not one of those kind of replicable things. And I think there is a lot of serendipity with these things. And particularly because the early business model for EF as well was um, EF was a not-for-profit and we um, raised money through corporate sponsorship. And I found with corporate sponsorship stuff, it is super random. As in we would have some people that we went after for years, uh, as in like spent 18 months trying to convert them. Um, and after 18 months of literally dragging you through the mud, they would say no. And then other people, I remember having a call with somebody who had sent me an email from a big, um, well-known tech company. And they were like, cool, how much money do you want? And I was like, 20K. And they were like, cool, okay, um, I'll send you a contract. And you know, I'm like, what? <laughs> there must be some science between why some are successful and some aren't. Do you think there are any variables that link successful partnership building from unsuccessful? So... I think the key thing here is we the ones that gave money quickly, it wasn't partnership building. Typically, it would be a one-off payment that we never saw again. Um, and that was with Entrepreneur First, where I think sometimes people just wanted to clear out their budget. And it was just kind of end of year. I mean, some of them explicitly said this to me. Uh, and we were, going to, <laughs> we were going off to CSR budgets. So typically, the people that gave us money very, very quickly, as in on a phone call, having never met me, um, only did that once. Uh, the people who um, you went through what seemed like a reasonable amount of meetings, as in you would meet somebody mid-level, they would escalate to their boss, you would have a meeting together, they would commit cash, often we'd get kind of a couple of years of sponsorship from them, and you'd build a relationship and it would be a partnership. Um, And then the ones that just drag you on forever, I, I don't even know why they're wasting their time, to be honest. How do you avoid them? Or how do you spot ones which are gonna, because I think in like B2B relationships, that's the thing, right? the sales cycle of some of them can be so long and some of them won't result in anything have you picked up any kind of insight as to why some turn into something and why others don't I think if you can build a friendly relationship with the person um that you are working with so that you can understand their budget requirements lots of the time it's that the person really really wants to do it but there's some budget issue that means that they can't and the more that you can understand whether this is a budget issue in their control or not um, the faster that you can probably cut them off if you need to, because um, it does waste a bunch of time. So I think the hard thing is that whenever there's money at the end of the tunnel and you're desperate for cash, it's very hard to say, oh, actually, I'm not going to take that money. That person's wasting my time. But probably, and I'm thinking about a couple of people, a couple of companies where this just went on and on and on. If I'd cut my losses at the point where I realized it had been going on for kind of 12 months plus, I probably could have reallocated my energy mm. more effectively. But, but again, there is an amount of serendipity, like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, they literally just sent an email and they've been the most amazing partner. And I think that is quite unusual, but I suppose it's all—it's that whole kind of positioning yourself for luck in that we didn't do any kind of paid marketing, but, you know, we did Twitter and Facebook and, you know, we're on social and just trying to make noise in any way we could. But yeah, there is, there is an amount of serendipity, unfortunately. When you first put it out in the world as a separate organization, you, you were at a pretty good place with Entrepreneur First, but it wasn't, you know, what it, the organization it is today. How did you feel putting out this totally new organization into the world? Were you confident this is a thing that needs to exist or were you, did you feel a bit, you know, wasn't fully ready for the world to see? Well, I suppose because my natural inclination is just to do stuff, the whole sort of putting something out there that's scrappy and not perfect, I'm the opposite of a perfectionist. Like throw it out there, see what happens, get some feedback. I'm really not worried about uh, 
done is better than perfect. So actually throwing throwing out, putting out a sort of new brand that was attached to Entrepreneur First and having a very, very scrappy first version of the product, really, I I just find that really exciting and really kind of liberating. I suppose the the difficult bit whenever you're building your own side project and then handing it on to someone else is you just have such a strong emotional attachment. And I think particularly because I cared so deeply about how do we get more women into tech, I felt so lucky that I had almost accidentally got into tech and then realized that there was this whole world that people just weren't, young women weren't talking about such an important industry as in it is, I mean, almost talking about the tech industry now seems um everything is tech Mm -hmm. and I I cared so much about what we were doing that then handing it on to someone else felt pretty scary Uh, and I think this is the really hard bit in any kind of side project's life is how do you let go while still keeping the kind of essence of why you started it Mm. I think emotionally it's really hard it is emotionally hard to let go but the only way for it to be successful if you aren't going to run it full-time is to make sure the person who runs it has full ownership and that they care about it as much as you do. And if you're still kind of on the shoulder saying, oh, we should be going in this direction or don't do this, you know, whatever. I think it's very hard for whoever's taking it on as the leader to really own and uh, embody it. And we've had two CEOs now of CoFirst Girls and they've both had very different views on how the organization should run. They both run it in, in different ways and it's been amazing. And they've really kind of, I think having a strong mission and strong view of what the organization is trying to achieve is great, that kind of long-term goal, then actually I think even as the founder, you have to be pretty agnostic about how you get there because you're not the one doing it if you let go of it. So uh, yeah, I think there's sort of that emotional turmoil that I definitely felt of like, oh, I, you know, I've got so many ideas and there are so many things I want to do, but actually it's just not me doing it anymore. So I have to let go. How did you make that choice? Because I guess, you know, when was that in, it was seven years ago, no. 2015 something like that 2014 you could have chosen to carry on that and Matt head up EF did you consider that not really I suppose I mean I'm so interested by what I'm doing in entrepreneur first I suppose I felt very lucky that there were two things that I was really fascinated by but I felt that the intellectual challenge of EF and like working out this thing that nobody thought could work of like how do you take individuals that have no idea, no team, and and turn them into fundable companies in a very short amount of time. I just was kind of addicted to that problem. And I was very excited by what Codeverse was doing, but I didn't feel like I had to do it. Um, I wanted it to exist and was kind of, if the option had been, okay, well, if if you don't do it, it doesn't exist, maybe I would have thought differently about it. And I suppose that's probably how I felt about EF, that if Matt and I didn't do it, it wouldn't exist and that it had to be me and Matt doing this because we were the ones that believed it could be done. Whereas Code First Girls, it felt like everyone believes this should exist. Everyone believes this is a good idea. So that would mean that other people can take it on. So it almost was, felt like EF was the orphan child and that this would be the one that would struggle if I wasn't, you know, I need, needed to be part of it. How did you make that transition then? Did you did you like write down some of the key mission points or, or some of the key things that you really wanted to achieve in the next couple of years? So we we did uh, some work when the new CEO, Amali Dolwes, um took over from me where we actually had a consultant come in and we ran a bunch of workshops on like, what is the mission of the company? What are the values? Where is this going? And I think that was a really useful moment just to make sure that we were on the same page and that it was kind of co-created. But I think if we hadn't have done that, it probably would have been quite messy um, in that it was a very young new organization. It could have gone in lots and lots of different directions. 
there were lots of different aims that we could be going after. I'm glad we invested the time to kind of do that proper handover. I think it would have been very easy to have got that very wrong. And then kind of onboarding the new CEO who started uh, a year ago, Anna, spending the time to transfer the mission, but then spending the time basically hearing what she wants to do with that mission and taking it in a slightly different direction from the first CEO and putting her own stamp on it as well. So with any organization, being super clear about that long-term piece is, is kind of the most important thing. Why did you decide to set it up as a social enterprise? Because EF is for profit. So you could have very easily kind of either either included it or spun it out as another for-profit enterprise. It's a good question and one that I'm still sort of noodling on and that we get lots of people who come to EF who, and actually lots of women who want to set up um, not-for-profits. And EF started as a not-for-profit. And the reason that we stopped being a not-for-profit was that we couldn't create a business model that would allow us to scale as a not-for-profit, like we had to, we had to have a model where we could return money to people in some way so that we could get beyond having 30 people a year. You know, we started as a not-for-profit, we could do 30 people a year and we had a teeny tiny budget to make that happen. And as a for-profit, we can do 800 people a year across six locations across three continents. So profit-driven companies doesn't mean evil and doesn't mean that you have to have to do things in a, in a kind of negative way. I think profit-driven companies enable scale and I think if you want to have impact one of the most important things that you should believe in is is the scale of that impact and that even if you're trying to have a deep impact on people's lives you should be trying to do that at scale so EF has a deep impact on people's lives you know really fundamentally changes their career paths 800 people a year obviously is not as many people as Google is impacting for example but actually for us we feel that that is a really significant scale and um, for Code First Girls I think there is a, I think it probably could work as a for-profit company um but actually, one of the things that uh, I've been really delighted with is it's managed to do both scale and kind of maintain uh, maintain the mission um, and most importantly, maintain a business model. I think the, the challenge is that often by being a not-for-profit, I think sometimes people believe that excuses the need for a business model. But whatever you are running has to have a business model and it has to be a business model that scales with your customer. So the challenge of having... Um, for example, a sponsorship business model that is just purely like, here's something from a CSR budget, is that you then have two customers, right? You have in the um, Code First Girls sense, you have the customer that is the woman taking the course. And really, you just want to delight that customer. You want to make sure that she has the best experience and that you really change her career trajectory. You also have this other customer that's the corporate that you're they're buying some sort of nebulous product from you, which is kind of like good brand associ- associations and maybe being inter- able to interact with the, uh, the community you build. But actually, my preference would be to have a business model where everybody's incentives are, are aligned. So for Entrepreneur First, what this means is like the not-for-profit business model, we found we were being pulled too much into like serving our corporate sponsors. And often sometimes the, the stuff that we were doing to serve our corporate sponsors was stuff that we knew was very unattractive for our customer whereas now our business model is basically a VC business model we have a fund and the fund we invest in the customer but also it pays for all our running costs the reason why that's amazing is our incentive is to help make the customer's company as big as possible that's good for the customer and it's great for our LPs who are the investors in our fund so everybody's incentives are aligned and as we scale there are nothing breaks down there whereas by having a sort of not-for-profity, sponsorshipy business model, I think it can make scale hard and it can um, divert your attention from the, from the customer. So interesting. 
Because I guess, I guess in some cases you have like corporate sponsors whose interest is in the interest of the community, but I guess it's harder to align. It's a really important question for people who are developing all types of side projects is to go deep into it and say, at its most like primal or core thing, what, what is this incentivizing? And is it a positive thing? And I think it's, it's just such an interesting point because I think you should be able to kind of go, even at its most basic, unglossy thing, this is useful for both parties versus, you know, as you say, the sort of uh, whatever the word is, like vague association with with a particular organization. Yeah, it's sort of, it's making sure you know what corporates are paying for, because I think sometimes corporates are paying for something that they're not explicit about. Um, and you just need, you need to have that conversation about why they're getting involved. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we did discuss is, you know, do you just charge our customer? Do you charge the women to take part in Co-First Girls? And actually, I'm really against that. We have a professionals course, which is for for older women or more experienced, more mature women. Um, but the, you know, the reason Code First Girls exists is to reduce the barriers to trying a career in tech. And I think that even having any sort of cost barrier does make it harder to have a very broad. And we have an amazingly diverse community at, at Code First Girls. So if you look at that 20,000 that have been through, you know, 50% are from BAME backgrounds. Um, we have such a, it's such a diverse pool on, on kind of every dimension. And so making sure that there are no, literally zero barriers to trying, you know, the barrier is that you have to turn up or you have to log, log on to the, the course. For me, that was a very important part of the mission of the company. So it's sort of, your, you know, your business model, if you want impact, has to scale. It has to have the right incentives aligned at every stage, um, but it has to fit with the mission as well. What's an example of Code First Girls corporate sponsor that's really well aligned, that you think is like a good example of corporate sponsorship done well? So one of the ways that I think it can work well is where you have an explicit agreement that they are looking for talent. Obviously, we are training up women who are at the beginning of their careers who are looking for jobs. You know, the reason to become trained up in tech and to become technical is because they want to work. They want a job. And where we've had explicit agreements with sponsors where they're almost paying for the product, which is access to that group, uh, it has worked really well. And by being explicit, you know, we hold career evenings at their offices and they, the uh, women get fast tracked through their application process where we know we are, that is the product that they want and that is the product that we're providing. And we know it's the, the product that our customers are interested in as well. That works really well. And I suppose the caveat there is that it's not that if you do Code First Girls, you have to go and work for this company that you don't want to work with. And, you know, the customer still has choice, but actually it's a product that, that most of our customers are looking for at that point in their careers, which is often at the point where they're sort of at university or just having graduated or um, even just before as well. Just in terms of entrepreneur first, I think the philosophy around company creation and idea creation is very unique. It was, I think, one of the first incubation programs, mm. right? Was it the first? Um, we're the first to invest at scale in individuals. Most investors invest in ideas and teams and companies. And yeah, you don't need any of that. I was curious what your view, as someone who is a big advocate for that ambitious idea creation, whether you think there's space for ideas to, to form in that more organic, almost like playful, experimental, slow, serendipitous way. There are so many different ways that you can create ideas. And I suppose the, the way that we develop ideas at Entrepreneur First is um, tailored for our program, which is, you know, you've got basically three months to go from zero to having an idea that we, we will fund with a, with a co-founder. I think you can do, in some ways, it, it's, it's like sort of, diamond mining you know does the pressure um actually enable you to, you to make a better idea because uh because the pressure exists 
I think it, I think it can work both ways. I suppose the, the key thing that I've learned about idea creation is one of the misconceptions that I think people often have about making very big ideas, which often need to have to win a market. So it needs to be differentiated to some extent. It needs to be 10x better than what already exists. Is that when, when people often think about ideas, they often think about problems and problems they experience um, in a, on, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it's the old, I'm hungry. Ah, oh, there should be more food delivery apps or whatever it may be. Really, the way that we encourage people to think about coming up with ideas is what is the problem that you're, you personally are best suited to solve? So it's more thinking about what is your edge? What's your personal competitive edge as a founder, as a potential founder in solving a problem that will make you stand out compared to all the other people who are trying to solve that problem? Because if you want scale, you're probably going to need VC funding. Um, And if you want VC funding, you're going to need a kind of differentiated value proposition and a real kind of why now as to, to why this business should exist. So the mistake that we often see people come to us with is, here is my passion. This is what I really love. But actually, it's not something that they necessarily are an expert in. What we would push people to think about is what is the thing that you are most expert in? What's the thing that you have dedicated already a large chunk of your life to, whether you're 18 or whether you're 38? And how can you use that as the starting point to understand how to build an incredible solution for a problem that you are best suited to solve, rather than it being, you know, if I was to characterize it, it would be uh, we we, uh, we recruit um, uh, about 60-70% of our cohorts have some sort of technical background. Um, we had a real issue at one point um, a couple of years ago where uh, we would have all these amazing machine learning PhDs coming out of Imperial or Cambridge or Oxford, um, and they all wanted to build the same idea, which was a dating app. And it didn't use their machine learning backgrounds at all, didn't use this very valuable skill set they had, but it was just a problem that they had experienced in their daily lives and wanted to solve. We had a, a marketing slogan, which was don't build a dating app, you know, change the world. And really what, what we were trying to push these individuals to do instead was to say, okay, well, you have this kind of rare and valuable skill set within machine learning. Let's think about what are the problems that you are you personally are best suited to solve with this deep area of expertise. Um, you know, when you're building a startup, it doesn't have to be completely disconnected from everything you've previously done in your life. I think sometimes, particularly people are in a job at the moment, they often think starting a startup or even a side project is something that allows them to totally get away from their day to day. Actually, in your day to day, you've built up knowledge, you've built up a network, and, and you've probably built up kind of some degree of expertise in problems in that space. We would highly encourage you, uh, or our kind of methodology at Entrepreneur First, is to say, well, use that. Those are assets. Um, being a founder is hard enough. You're going to have to learn a bunch of new stuff um, that's going to really, really push you out of your comfort zone. So let's use those assets that you already have, that edge, that knowledge, that expertise as the foundation for your idea, the foundation for your side project, um, rather than starting something completely different. This is somewhere where I think we disagree. Because decisions that you've made when you were like 16, 17, 18, which has funneled you into, let's say you take a graduate job in whatever the industry is. And before you know, you've just sort of like closed your eyes and you've slept, walked through like a, you know, load of your life. Whereas I think there's something very liberating in the fact that you can start something new at any point and you can be driven and, you know, the power of intrinsic motivation. If you're interested in something, you can learn the stuff you need to do, you know, to build that into a side project or a business. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely right. You're completely right. Um, Yeah, and I suppose just thinking about different individuals at EF, I think there is this this piece of what kind of person are you? And we have these three kind of people that we take on EF. Domain edges who have a real area of expertise and they should use that. And like 
that is their best route to becoming a successful founder. Tech edges, who again, if you have a machine learning PhD, probably means to some extent that you enjoyed learning about machine learning. And that's probably something that you should use. You should see the value in that. And then we have a third category of people, and we call them catalysts. And these are individuals where it kind of almost doesn't matter what they work on. They are individuals that when put with a co-founder, when they meet a co-founder, they can kind of catalyze that person's skill set. Um, and these are often individuals who we found who have chopped around different startups, different corporate jobs, done lots of different things, who are quite sort of frenetic. Those individuals, I think, do fit more with your categorization of actually, this is the opportunity to do something different. I suppose my caveat would be that we often find those individuals are on the less experienced end of the spectrum. And um, I suppose have fewer assets to kind of monetize, if you like, as in they don't have the depth of knowledge and expertise. They're, to be honest, some of our most successful founders are in that catalyst uh, type of person, but they are best when paired with somebody who does have an edge that can be catalyzed, if you like. I've got so many more questions for you, but we'll have to leave it here. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. This has been really good fun. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you've been a listener for a while uh, or you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. And if you want to join the side project Sprint, head to outofhours.org slash courses. 